Yeah, bitch, I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the broadcast. And I am irate today. So, you know how Spotify has that, like, AI DJ thing? I was listening to it yesterday on the drive home, and it goes, Now for something from when you were growing up, and started playing I Will Survive by Gloria fucking Gaynor. Now... Not only am I not 45 years old, I'm pretty sure I had to sign up with my birthday when I made an account on Spotify. They know how old I am. I think it might have just gotten confused or something because I have a lot of like 70s and 80s rock in my marathon playlist for the times when you're running and you just want to get angry. It also started playing Vindaloo by Fat Les as well, which is common for a Scottish person to have unequivocal patriotism to the UK and England. Unequivocal. See, I did go to school. Anyway, you know the drill. And if Or if you don't, I yell about Formula One and Big Brother. Then I have a list of pop culture things for me to have shit takes about. In Formula One, last weekend, we had the Singapore Grand Prix. We had er about everything that you would expect. Drivers working out in saunas in the week before the race. Lizard genocide. And social media admins posting ice bath thirst traps. Throughout free practice, it seemed like the Red Bulls were completely off the pace compared to Ferrari. But other than that, there was nothing really major to report. The Nepo baby had a big crash at the end of Q1, which essentially killed any hope of Piastri getting out of Q1. It sucks, but that is part of the sport. Why does he continually evade criticism from anyone apart from rocket-powered Mohawk whenever he has a dum-dum? Anytime anyone throws any shade at him on Twitter, the responses are, Yeah, but he got that poll in Turkey 2020, or he's good on his day. Yeah, well... Turkey was an anomaly with a massive amount of rain where both Ferraris were outqualified by a customer team, and the day that he is good comes around once every 12 months. The thing is, he is not a new driver. This is his seventh season in the sport. Half of the current grid started later than him, if you count Liam Lawson instead of Ricardo as he's currently driving. There was a couple of incidents in Q2 with Yuki being impeded by one of the Big Brother team. I think it was Max, but it could have been Checo. He also had a couple of shenanigans in Q2 as well. But Red Bull got let off with just a warning by the stewards because Alpha Tauri never showed up to contest it. Interesting, that one. I can't imagine why. But the biggest piece of news from qualifying was the Red Bulls being completely off the pace and both of them getting knocked out in Q2 by Loney, Liam Lawson, and Alpha Tauri. After qualifying, Helmut Marko was allegedly seen walking towards the Alpha Tauri cars with a sh- chainsaw. Allegedly. Liam Lawson also scored his first points this weekend, so well done, Liam. But it doesn't look like you'll be in the sport next season, unfortunately. After it was reported that Alpha Tauri have decided to continue with Sonoda and Ricardo. Now, something that Sky Sports F1 won't tell you is that this was all orchestrated by Alex Albon as revenge for getting the boot in 2020 for being raced too hard. Scientifically, the correlations are iffy, but the connections are sound. So at Monza last year, Albon gets appendicitis and has to be replaced by De Vries, who then has a good race and scores points. Alpha Tauri then sign him to replace the outgoing Pierre Gasly, then De Vries shits the bed and Alpha Tauri have to replace him with a driver with F1 experience to kind of steady the ship. Ricardo then breaks his hand and has to be replaced by the last driver remaining, Liam Lawson, who then outqualifies both Red Bulls in the Singapore Grand Prix. It's all connected! Because had De Vries not got that drive Monza, then Alpha Tauri would have probably have signed Mick Schumacher instead. 
Now, depending on what mood Helmet Marco was in, this has done one of two things. It's either got him a seat for next season or he's been ripped to death by a chainsaw. And from the reports that are coming out, it seems like Alpha Terry are sticking with Sonoda and Ricardo for next season, so it's on. So it's likely the latter, unless they can convince Williams to punt out Sargent for him. But it seems like Williams sees Sargent as a two-year plan to get him up to speed with Formula One. So Red Bull may need to put him on the street corner in some stripper heels to convince Williams to take him home for the night. Now, at this point, it's seeming incredibly unlikely that Red Bull are going to win and their streak of wins is coming to an end unless we have another 2008 incident do you know what happened in 2008 no of course you don't because formula one started when drive to survive started you're so cute so in 2008 fernando alonso's car shot the bed in qualifying and he started i think it was 15th or 14th somewhere and towards the back of the grid which was annoying because for the first time this season it was the first time that Alonso felt like he had some genuine pace so Renault intentionally underfueled his car so that he would then be lighter and quicker remember this was at a time when cars could be refilled during the race which is a bold strategy because if you're starting towards the back you would want to feel your car as much as possible and extend the stint as much as you could it's essentially like People expect them to start on the hard tires, but instead putting on the super softs. I know they don't do super softs anymore. Shut up. Back in 2008, I think the rules were that when the safety car comes out, the pit lane closes so you can't pit under a safety car like they do nowadays. Anyway, Renault allegedly told Alonso's teammate Nelson Piquet, yes, the son of that Nelson Piquet, to crash on purpose so that when the safety car comes back in, all the other cars would come in and when the race restarted except for Alonso and then Alonso would pass everybody on this on a circuit that's difficult to pass during the chaos of the situation Ferrari fucked up a pit stop as per nothing has changed in 15 years and this sent Massa who was looking destined to win the race tumbling down the order and out of the points completely fucking up his race the following season Renault sacked PK for being shit and replaced him with Roman Grosjean PK then went to the FIA and ratted out the team saying that they told him that he was ordered to crash on purpose and after an investigation Renault was disqualified which basically means that if they were found to have done something similar then they would be out of F1 completely. The managing director Flavio Briatore was handed an indefinite ban from Formula One while director of engineering Pat Simmons was given a five-year ban and if you see Massa fighting for the 2008 championship this is why because he was fighting for the race to be eliminated entirely because it was fixed. And if you take out the result of the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix, then Hamilton doesn't score six points from coming third. Then Massa wins the 2008 title with 97 points to Hamilton's 92. And he's taken into court citing substantial financial losses, which is true because F1 world champions do tend to get sponsored with more luxury brands like clothes banks oil companies that understate the damage they're doing to the environment whereas how many formula one champions have you seen advertise aldi boats none what was i talking about oh yeah max verstappen this is a man who pitted six times in zandvoort but this is also a man that is having to fight the car for it to not go slamming into the bars at every given opportunity 
and a man who's been known to do a little dumb dumb around Singapore from time to time. So winning is definitely seeming unlikely. Now, fast forward to Sunday and Aston Martin announced that the Nepo baby is not going to be racing after the crash in qualifying. A deleted tweet said that he wasn't going to race in Japan either, but he was in FP1 today, so that's seeming unlikely. Now, my race recap will be a bit less thorough than normal because I set my alarm for the the wrong time and I missed the first half of the race. At the start of the race, Leclerc got past Russell, Hamilton took a swing past Malaysia before rejoining the track and overtaking Lando and Russell. Sergio Perez was driving like how I drive on the F1 game when I turn damage off and twat drivers off the track when they break too early into corners in a completely fucked up Sonoda's race. On lap 21, we had a full safety car because Logan Sargent had a little kiss with the wall. Both Ferraris, both Mercedes, and Lando Alpet. Leclerc got a little held up because he had to wait for the Mercedes of Hamilton to move into the pit box, so Russell managed to cut in front of him. Max stayed out in hopes of getting the lead and getting clean air, but he didn't. He ends up behind Carlos Sainz, meaning not only does he have older tires, he's also dealing with turbulent air behind Sainz. Fernando Alonso did a me in the F1 game and tried to carry too much speed into the pits and had to go back onto the racetrack. And I'm pretty sure he got a five-second penalty for it. All kind of a pretty good race until the Alpine did what the Alpine does best and completely shot the bed. Because of this, we got a virtual safety car. So on lap 43, the running order is Carlos Sainz, George Russell, Lando Norris, Charles Leclerc, and Lewis Hamilton. The two Mercedes dart into the pits, double stack for fresh tires, giving up the track position, thinking they'll have enough time to catch back up and fight for the win with fresh tires. Now the running order is Sainz, Norris, Leclerc, with the Mercedes chasing them down. The Mercedes get past Leclerc pretty quickly, and now it's just a Twitch streamer, and he is intimidating me between them and their first Mercedes 1-2 since Brazil last year. I'll be honest, I completely forgot Hamilton came second there until I double-checked the statistic. I thought I was going back to the to like 2020 when Mercedes had built a literal rocket ship. Hamilton won the British Grand Prix in 2020 on three wheels. They were taking the fucking piss that year. However, Carlos Sainz forgot what team he drives for and thought tactically. He realized what was inevitably going to happen. So he backs off the pace a bit so that Lando then gets within one second. Ferrari comes on the radio and is just like, yo, speed the fuck up, the Muppet is catching you. But Sainz knew what he was doing. He was intentionally giving Lando DRS to help defend against the Mercedes and using him as a meat shield because he knew two things. One, Lando didn't have the pace to overtake him. And two, if the Mercedes managed to clear Lando, then he has lost the win. Albon had a pretty good race until Sergio Perez does what Sergio Perez does best, breaks too late, doesn't hit the apex, and goes right into the side of Albon, essentially taking Albon out of contention for points, which I think this would have been his third points finish in a row, I think, until this happened. Sky Sports were edging themselves at the prospect of an all-British podium throughout the race until they ruined themselves after George Russell did a dum-dum and twatted the wall and drove right into the barriers on the final lap. And so, Carlos Sainz ended up winning with Lando Norris coming second and Lewis Hamilton third. So congratulations, Carlos Sainz, for being promoted to team strategist for Ferrari for next season. And Big Brother, so last week, Izzy was voted out of the Big Brother house after the house got flipped by Cameron and America. The editing of the episodes were trying to make it like it was Corey that was the main component of flipping the vote, but it wasn't. Before the vote, Sari goes to Jar and tells him that she feels the atmosphere is off and is getting a weird vibe, especially from Corey, and tells Jared to go feel it out. 
Jared goes to Matt and lies saying that Jag told him that he wanted Felicia to stay. They have a bit of a back and forth and then Corey gets pulled into the conversation. This conversation blows up into a heated argument. Corey and Jared throw accusations back and forth and lies getting thrown and basically the entire house realized that Jared can't be trusted but Jared doubles down anyway. So after yelling for an extended amount of time and then calming down Jared uses the classic tactic of telling Corey to lower his voice after it got raised because I lowered mine. Now I'm not sure how long Jared was yelling at the time because I wasn't watching the feeds. People on the subreddit are saying that he was yelling for like 30 minutes, but this could be an exaggeration. But it just comes off so condescending when one person tells another person to shush when they've been yelling themselves. People in glass houses should not throw phones. Sari then makes her way into the room to try and do damage control, knowing what Jar is doing. And Corey calls her out for being in the middle of every single alliance in the house. Something that may need to be addressed is that Corey has outed himself as now a strong contender. And once you do that, it's really hard to get that that off of you. But he knew that Suri had the capability to swing the house back and evict Felicia, so he needed to keep pushing the Jar and Suri are untrustworthy for the house doesn't flip back. But then it also keeps a target off of himself. So after Izzy was evicted, we have Corey and America on one side of the house and Suri and Jard on the other side of the house. And then the rest of the ca- of the house guests kind of floating somewhere in the middle. Suri and Jared were hoping that America or Corey didn't win. And America and Corey were hoping that Jared didn't win HOH. Cameron and Jag were probably more on the side of hoping Suri and Jared didn't win. As they were probably seeing it as they could also be targets on top of America and Corey. Before the challenge, Julie comes on to say that we are going to do an old school and instead of having a jury of nine this season, we'll go by old school rules and have a jury of seven. So what happens? Jared wins HOH, puts Core in America on the block with his real plan being to backdoor Cameron. In his nomination speech, he then tries to rally against Corey saying that he cannot be trusted, blah, 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 blah. But all it really does is kind of paint a bigger target on his own head. Cameron assumes that because he wasn't put on the block, they were aiming to backdoor him, which they were. Jar's playing an awful game and honestly probably would be out already had his mom not be there to basically be a shield for him. Zeke from Survivor, I think it was Zeke, it might have been someone else, and one of the season recaps from Survivor basically said that how you play this game is that you either need to see everyone as a number to work with or a potential number to work with. However, going after Corey in his nomination speech has made Corey America not want to work with him and probably pushed Jag and maybe Matt away from working with him as well. Felicia still pissed at him because of the huge fight in the have not room was about getting her out, not saving her. So this is like what about half the house right here really doesn't want to work with him. Then Jag wins power of veto and takes Corey down. Jar then nominates Cameron. And his fate is pretty much sealed. Had Izzy stayed last week, I think there may have been a chance that Cam could have stayed this week. Because no one wants to work with him. He's a good shield. And then you can just push America going and getting a duo out of the house. So, as expected, Cameron is evicted after an 8-0 vote. But then, Julie announces that he will be returning to the game in zombie form. BB Zomboys, if you will. I assume this is just going to be like the camp comeback from 21 where they chill in the house and then they have a competition, the winner gets to re-enter the game. Basically, they go into the house, this is a pointless week because we have no one going, 
no HOH, no power of veto. And at the end of the week is the competition to get back in the house. So not only are we essentially losing a week, it makes the double infection pretty much meaningless. And we're going to be no fucking closer to jury. Imagine getting evicted in week nine and not making the jury. It makes no sense to make the jury start at nine when this is the largest cast we've ever had. Anyway, in the double eviction, Corey wins HOH and nominates Jared and Blue. He tells Blue that if Jared wins uh, Power of Veto and takes himself off, then Saree's going up and she is not a target. However, Matt wins Power of Veto and keeps the nominations the same, which essentially shows his hand of which side of the house he's on. And Jared is voted out 6-1 to one with Saree being the only vote for Blue because she couldn't put a vote on Jared. Now, if my mom got wind that I was being voted out and there was nothing she could do, I would hope damn well she would throw her vote on me to save herself. Jared also gets told about the twist, so we have to wait and see what happens and which one of the two of them will re-enter the game. Last week I'd said that Sari is too good at the game, and that is true. However, she has essentially been anchored by Jared because anything that Sari tells Jared, Jared will then tell Blue. Blue tells Jag, and within half a day it's public information around the entire house. Sari's biggest asset is her likability and her ability to stay calm in heated situations. A perk that would be a major asset in a game as long as Big Brother is as long as she wasn't tied to a firework. Like, it almost feels like production wanted to put Sari in the house but knew she'd be too good at the game. So they put Jared in the house to kind of nerf her a bit. Jared, because Jared was originally cast on Survivor David vs. Goliath but he, when he, I think he was 20 but he pulled out in the last minute and then Alec got moved to the Goliath tribe from the David tribe, and Davy replaced Jared. After watching him on Big Brother, it really makes me wonder why or how he would have done on Survivor, because he probably would not have been much better. And it'll be interesting to see how Sari plays now that she isn't tied to Jared, assuming Cam wins uh, the competition next week and Jared is officially evicted. Will it end up being a Natalie Anderson redemption story? Or will she be the next to go, as winning a comp is only the real way to ensure power in the house? And winning competitions is impossible for her. Now on to kind of pop culture. I just want to throw a quick note out there that Achievement Hunter has announced that they're coming to an end. I assume in its current form, but will probably largely still be the same thing under a different name. Probably another podcast because Rooster Teeth definitely needs another one of those. Achievement Hunter started back in like 2008. So you have to do something right to last 15 years on the internet as a brand. Even with the turbulent waters of the unnamed former member taking advantage of underage fans. I don't really have much else to say here. I just, I used to watch a lot of content in high school in the first few years of uni. I don't really remember when I stopped, but I do remember eventually it felt like I just got older and the jokes and the content have been pivoted to a younger audience. I mean, look, I just check this today. Look at this shit Rooster's post nowadays. It's 30-year-olds making content for, like, preteens and teenagers. That's all I really have to say. I'm sure whoever, from when I watched, is still there will land on their feet, but I'll tell you who will not be landing on their feet in the near future. Russell Brand. So, Channel 4 in the UK announced that they were releasing a documentary alleging sexual abuse within the UK comedy scene. However, what actually ended up having was a full expose on Russell Brand, and it feels fucking fantastic to say that I believe Russell Brand is a fucking c- that sexually abuses women. It was being advertised as we're going after several sexual abusers in the stand-up comedy mistakes, then did a complete piece on only Russell Brand. Because had his lawyers or him got wind of this, then it would 100% have become a legal battle like it has happened for years. As it stands right now, four women have come forward against him alleging sexual assault, 
what was his response to this? The exact same as anyone who peddles out doubt over the mainstream media. The mainstream media is trying to take me down because I'm fighting them. Because he pivoted to this anti-government alt-right movement when he knew that this would inevitably catch up with him. So that his army of Andrew Tates would come to his defense and attack the victims online. And I also have to give a massive shout out to Daniel Sloss for this. The way that he stood up for these victims... For anyone who hasn't seen it, he has a 30 minute or so bit at the end of his stand-up special X. I think it's on HBO if you're in America, if you haven't watched it. And the central message basically being don't downplay your mates red flags acting this way. And you, because if you see it and say nothing, you're equally part of the problem. I'll be honest, I don't think there's a single person in the UK that's shocked by this. Because we've all heard rumours, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th hand of shit he's done. And when there's so much smoke, there can't not be fire. But the kind of way that I am is believe and then verify. Because false rape accusations are incredibly rare, contrary to what the red pill parts of the internet will lead you to believe. But because the conviction rate is so low for rapists, it means so many cunts get away with it. Which means less women come forward because either of lacking the belief of the system or they worry about losing credibility if they do come forward and nothing happens. And Twitter's been an absolute fucking dumpster fire of red-pilled fucking losers going after the victims and Daniel Sloss and Catherine Ryan as well. It was absolutely fucking awful. Now, someone who's had a bit of a different week compared to Russell Brand is his ex-wife, Katy Perry. One has lost everything while one is making generational wealth. Just imagine the shit that she could bring up if she could was illegally allowed to. The court would go down for sure. Because it was announced this week that Katy Perry has decided to sell her library of music for $225 million. Now, this isn't a new thing. A lot of artists have been selling off their libraries as of late. But even then, I vaguely remember Michael Jackson owning the Beatles library or some shit. Did I make that up? Was that a gag on South Park? Hang on, let's search it up real quick. Michael Jackson Beatles library michael jackson paid 47.5 million dollars to own the beatles catalog atv owned the rights to 251 beatles songs including hey jude yesterday and let it be as well as 4,000 other songs in a library of sound effects jackson instructed entertainer lawyer and manager john branca to purchase the catalog on his behalf so yeah that did happen and as a legal expert with zero degree in law it is my professional opinion that this makes sense okay hear me out because royalties you get paid when a song is streamed is taxed at 30 percent where capital gains tax is closer to 20 percent so she's essentially getting a tax break of 225 million dollars on this money now they aren't really paying for the entire catalog i mean they are but what they are doing is they're making a calculated risk that songs like firework hot and cold dark horse that sort of the the more famous Katy perry songs will hold up within pop culture and that will drive them to make their money back on the catalog as a whole through royalties so it will probably end up being worth it and worth it and everyone wins Katy perry gets the money up front and whoever bought the library probably at the very least will make their money back if not in excess i don't really have any more to say to be honest well done Katy perry you've made enough money from the sale to buy the country of tuvalu if you wanted but it'll probably be underwater in the next 10 years because of taylor swift's excessive private jet use.
Final thing I have to say is that Drew Barrymore announced that her show was coming back to air and then got some other rather unsurprising backlash. Now, airing the show is not technically in direct violation with the WGA strikes, despite what the WGA has said. But her airing while the strikes are ongoing does give this atmosphere that writers aren't necessary on these types of shows. Other shows were also planning on coming back to air. I think Bill Mayer and The Talk were planning to return as well. However, Drew Barrymore got a lot more backlash because she's previously come out and said, said she's in favour of the strikes. So it came off as incredibly hypocritical. It was either that or people thought she was nice and relatable, kind of like how Ellen got shit for being a backstage when she had kind of had the personality of being the nicest person in Hollywood. But then after the backlash, Drew Barrymore released a statement saying that they would not be returning to air until after the strike's end. So well done, Drew Barrymore. Now people of Twitter were criticizing her for then doing what they described as like backing down to cancel culture. But it's just like, what resolution do you want? If you're going to criticize her for coming back to air during the strikes, but then also criticize her when she reversed her decision, all you're doing is creating this unwinnable situation, and then you're going to you're going to sit there and be shocked when she leans into the position that you don't like. And yeah, that's kind of all I have to say about that. That's all I've got for this week. All right, thanks for listening, and bye for now.